Health is a state of body and mind. Wellness is a state of being. We want you to have both. This is Channels of Health, the podcast giving you ideas and insights into new and time-tested avenues to health. From mental wellness and innovations in mental health to our daily lives and overall health journeys. Join your hosts, Patty and Damien, both founders of organizations dedicated to healing as they bring candid conversations and new information to you. Let's start the show. Here are your hosts, Patty and Damien. happy to have you here today on Channels of Health, along with myself and co-producer Damian Skinner. Hello, hello. Hello, thank you for having me. We are really excited. You have such a great background and you're such a professional in the field. We're going to get right to it. Kim, would you share a little bit about, or as much as you want actually, about your personal story as it relates to the world of eating disorders? Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, it's something that um, was formative to, is formative to my work. And um, it's something also that I think more professionals need to be comfortable talking about because it, more than anything else, um, people, patients and families are able to say, well, wow, if Dr. Kim and talk about having had an eating disorder and recovering, like maybe it's not such a bad thing for us to be talking about and making speakable, you know, and it decreases shame and it decreases stigma. And those are still two huge barriers to people accessing good care. Um, So my story, you know, I've been recovered from bulimia and uh, alcoholism for 20 years. Wow. And I grew up in... Um, I grew up with a lot of um, trauma in my family. Uh, My father was very sick with alcoholism. Um, We were poor. um, And, you know, I experienced physical abuse. Um, I witnessed a lot of physical abuse. um, And there was also sexual abuse in my family system. Um, You know, and how how I coped with that stuff. My, my father, who I was very close to, passed away when I was 11. Um, and that was really, that really shook, shook my world. Uh, we were raised in the church and I believed, you know, I believed in God. Um, when I would pray, um, I would actually, I had spiritual experiences in my faith growing up. And that, that also was very important to me because I think it set me up in my recovery to reconnect with something that I actually had experience with. Um, But after my father died, my faith just sort of went away because he was, you know, my whole world sort of fell apart, you know, because he and I were very, very close. Um, And I sort of coped with all this by excelling academically and excelling athletically. And that was all very, very good for me. You know, like I, I um, came into the world, I believe, with gifts, and um, some of those were intelligence and athleticism. And, um, you know, I, that, that saved me, I think, um, and, and, and helped me um, have a place within myself that I, that I felt resilience and that I felt strength and that I felt esteem. 
Um, but it was a very lonely, you know, it was a very lonely adolescence for me um, because I really just focused on school and sports. Um, and, you know, I, I didn't really have any eating disorder thoughts or behaviors or anything like that until uh, athletic director in my junior year of high school made a comment about my body. Um, and that just sort of, it just hit, you know, it hit inside. Um, it wasn't something that I ruminated about. It wasn't something that even on a conscious level, I was aware really changed anything for me, but that's just something that sort of stuck with me. Um, and it wasn't until college, until I started experiencing eating disorder behaviors, um, you know, and it was kind of by happenstance. Um, and a lot of it for me was getting to college. I mean, but right before college, I um, tore a ligament in my knee. And I think that's a significant part of my story as an athlete as well, um, because that, like I said, was one of the things that I felt like, okay, this is a gift from God. And now this has been, you know, my athleticism has been, has taken a hit mm. and my faith sort of took another hit. And then I launched into college. I was being heavily recruited for division one basketball um, and ended up getting some offers in division one, but not the caliber of basketball school that I had been recruited for, uh, but ended up going to the University of Chicago, um, partially on an academic scholarship. I played basketball there, but it was division three. So I felt like a loser, you know, like <laughs> what kind of person plays basketball in a division three school? Um, <clears throat> so, you know, I got to college and I felt really, really, really out of place, you know, because all the, like many of the other kids in my head, you know, comparison right. is a really dangerous thing for people with eating disorders or people who have susceptibility to it. Um, you know, because these were kids who had mothers and fathers who were doctors and lawyers and professors. And, you know, my dad didn't finish high school and my mom did finish high school, but she didn't go to college, you know? So I felt very different from all of these other people yeah. um, and ill-equipped socially. You know, I had a lot of social anxiety and a lot of fear that was not at all processed or touched. And right. all of that stuff fueled my eating disorder, um, you know, so my, you know, the, the pattern of binging and then purging, um, which I just sort of stumbled on by happenstance. But once, you know, once that happened for me, it was like um, something like flipped in my head that, that I could not put back. Um, and it took me, you know, it took me about 10 years Wow. Um, to be able to recover. And it got worse and worse and worse over time, you know, and I was I was like rocking it academically at the University of Chicago, getting all A's, playing basketball, playing softball, got into medical school early um, at the beginning of my sophomore year of college. And the first time I, you know, ever sought help, I didn't tell anybody about this ever, you know, nobody knew about this. Um, and I had so much shame about it too. The yeah. shame and the secrecy and the silence was 
you know, and that's that stuff is deadly and that stuff keeps people from getting help. Um, and I sought help at the student counseling center, which, um, you know, I was at the University of Chicago. Um, the University of Chicago is one of the few academic centers um, that actually has an eating disorder program, you know, led by at that time, it was led by Daniel LaGrange, who is a world-renowned eating disorder researcher. Yeah, we um, about that. That's crazy. Yeah, yep. And um, I got, I think, four sessions at the Student Counseling Center um, with someone who was like, you know, it's not that bad yet. And What a comment. You know, Let's wait until it gets you really only bad get... enough to put you in a hospital. Sorry. Yeah. You only get, like, eight sessions here anyways so we can refer you to someone in the community but i was like okay it's not that bad yet maybe i'm you know you know i was symptomatic probably you know at that point four times a week or five times a week mm. um, it's amazing that four or five times a week isn't that bad what's the measurement mm. of that bad in that world yeah yeah i mean that's a great question right it yeah. felt pretty bad to me no, it, it felt yeah. like you know, what is like, what is this thing that's creeping into my life that I can't stop? Right. Can, um, I know there's more to your story, but can we take just a moment and talk a minute about the origins of this? Because I know that people that I have known throughout the last 15 or 20 years who have battled with an eating disorder, they don't talk about it just like, stumbling on it by happenstance or it happening to them hmm. do you do you have a way of talking about the origins of an eating disorder i'm sure that it's quite varied actually but can you yep. give us any clarity around you know, people are often saying oh it's social media oh it's peer pressure oh it's vanity um, and of course that sort of speaks to anorexia a little bit more than bulimia but um, and I, I, I don't want to take you totally off your track. We'll get back onto that story. But the origins of, it, of eating disorders, do you have some wisdom about yep. that? Yeah, so this too is a very important question and one that's uh, pressing for sufferers and their families, you know, because oftentimes the person feels like it's something they did wrong. A family feels like there must be something we did wrong. And it's multifactorial. We know that. I think, um, you know, different factors weigh in more with some people than others. Uh, we know that there's a genetic underpinning. That is right. a for sure, right? That's one of the few for sures that we know about eating disorders. Um, Cynthia Bulick and her group in North Carolina um, have done a lot of work to substantiate that. Uh, we know that there are environmental factors, um, you know, the, the genetics, load the gun and the environmental factors pull the trigger. Right. Um, and many times that's, um, that can be trauma, that can be media, that can be um, a lot of times um, related to uh, other stressors in life. Um, some of it is psychological makeup of a person, you know, perfectionism, um, some of it is cognitive style. Some people come into the world with a more rigid, anxious predisposition. Um, that is some of what pulls the trigger for a lot of people. Um, so it's multifactorial. And this, is, this too speaks to why it's so important when we are assessing people with eating disorders 
that we assess them as individuals with an individual genetic makeup and an individual life experience. There are many commonalities between people who have eating disorders, and we focus a lot on those. But there are also a lot of unique aspects to each and every person who has, who gets labeled with whatever the eating disorder diagnosis is. Great. That's, that's really very helpful because I think there's tremendous confusion still oh, yeah. about it just being stubborn or lack of discipline or willpower. Seeking attention. Seeking attention. Yeah, there's, yeah. there's all Attention sorts. seeking. Yeah, and, and they just, they want to almost label people that struggle and battle with this as weak-willed and just right. get over it type of a thing. And, and I think it's really important that you go through that. So do you remember where you left off on your story? Because I, right. I, I don't want to have you well, not complete your, your journey there. I will remember, but one more important thing, like these are brain diseases. You know, people, um, people's brains are hijacked, mm. you know, so it's not a matter of, you know, even um, people with anorexia, right, where, which we think of as, well, this is something that gets applauded in society. People lose weight and everybody likes it. Um, right. So we refer to that as an egosyntonic uh, eating disorder. You know, it feeds the ego. Even people with anorexia, are able to say in the depths of their disease, like, I can't stop doing this. You know, like there's something in my brain that just is relentless and I can't stop it. Um, which is very different than they're just doing it because they want to be skinny or they're right. just doing it because they need attention or whatever else. Right. People who don't have eating disorders say about people who have eating disorders. Yeah, that's right. And since you mentioned the point about the brain, a lot of people don't understand that your brain is an organ, and as you are starving your body, you are starving your brain, and your brain is lacking the capacity to tell you to eat. It, pe people can't comprehend that it's not something that you're doing intentionally, but that it is literally a functional problem that you can't, your brain isn't telling you that you have to eat. Right. Yeah. In fact, it's telling you, you must not eat. That's interesting. Yeah, it's actually saying the opposite. That's a real good point. Yeah. Yeah. You're going to, that, that food is going to harm you, maybe even kill you. The food is not good for you. The food is not yeah. your nutrition. It's like that survival yeah. instinct has switched and it just stays on when it's not necessary. And yeah. it's frustrating for people who, you know, you work in other backgrounds. I've worked in other backgrounds where people have physical you can see what they're struggling with. And there's more empathy, there's more understanding. I explain this to my children. You can see this person is struggling. Yeah. So there's empathy there. You don't know that these people are struggling, but once we educate people that they're struggling, there still seems to be a lack of empathy because there's not this physical outward display all day, every day. And people have a hard time. If you're not touched by this, you have a hard time forgetting that this whole thing happens inside. You can't see it. You don't know what's going on. And the empathy just isn't the same as it is for someone with a outward physical, you know, ailment. To your point, yeah. and then to kind of pair that up with Dr. Kim, people actually applaud somebody losing weight. So how would mm -hmm. I feel empathy for somebody that I admire? You're I, doing something I, I can't even do, right? Yeah, you're losing weight, <laughs> and I think that's just so amazing. How can you be sick? 
Right. I wish yeah. I could lose that kind of weight. And that's, that's really kind of this wacko mindset. And then the communications that go to the patient or the person that's suffering are keep it up, continue to lose weight. Right. You're looking really awesome. If they actually start to put on weight and then family members say, oh, gosh, you look like you're gaining some weight. You look great. What they hear is, mm -hmm. I better stop eating because somebody just noticed that I'm gaining weight. Right. Yep. Yep. So, yeah. So not only can yep. they not have empathy, they admire your weight loss. Right. And so I think part of what's tricky about this all is I would venture to say that the vast majority of Americans have been impacted by a sick um, national idea about bodies mm. and weight. You know, and I think all of us in this country are to some extent or another impacted by thin bias. For you know? sure. Yeah. Now, can you define thin bias? Obviously, I know the two words and I can put it together. But for our listeners, when when we hear terms like that, that tells me that people had to figure out the right terminology to explain a problem. Right. Like. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I'd like for you to explain a little bit more. And we keep saying we'll come back to your history. Uh, <laughs> but I think a wildfire has started. So maybe if there's a way to tie in, uh, you know, that I'm always interested when it gets distilled into a, a, a term that we can use. So what is thin bias and why was it necessary to create an actual term for this thing? Yep. So... Part of um, creating a term is again making it speakable, mm. you know, because it's something that's so pervasive that it's invisible. And I can tie it back to a piece of my story. That athletic director, when I was a junior yeah. in high school, yeah. made a comment about how much weight I had gained between my sophomore and junior year, um, which is, you know, um, a comment rooted in thin bias. Mm. Um, for me, my experience of that transition was I was weightlifting. My thighs were big and powerful and strong. I had a great vertical, you know, like nobody was pushing me around on the basketball court. Right. Right. And for this male athletic director, he made some offhanded comment about a female athlete's body, a high school female athlete's body that was rooted in thin bias. Right. You know, would he have said that? And also, you know, a, you know, potentially, um, you know, I, I don't think he would have said the same thing to a male athlete right. that had put on weight. Right. right? So there's a, there's a, a sexism piece to it mm -hmm. as well. Even if he um, did, would the, would the male athlete have felt the same way you did? A male athlete might have no. said, oh, thank you. Yeah, I've been, I've been, been exercising, yeah. right? I mean, to, to a male yep. athlete, that might have been a compliment. Yeah, for sure. Well, and to men with eating disorders as well, mm. you know, because a lot of times it's for men um, with eating disorders, the body dysmorphia piece and the body image dissatisfaction piece is around being too small. Ah, being so it's all about the gains, the, yeah. the muscle gains and... And I just find that so fascinating. You can have the same coach, the same statement to two individuals, and it is taken, and the effects of it are felt for decades, for a lifetime, yeah. the ripple effect. And one can take it as never think about it again, and the other one can set a course to their life. Right. You know, and yeah. I, 
forgive the cheesy uh, transition, but the course to your life, you, you've brought up this coach several times, and I've always heard this as someone who hasn't directly been affected by eating disorders. I've always grown up hearing that a lot of this starts from coaches and teachers just making an offhand comment. Like if you were to confront that coach and tell them what they said, it would, they would never think in a million years. They might not even remember what they said. For sure. Yeah. Chances are very good that they wouldn't remember it because it was just a quick observation. So can you pick up from when you got into college and you felt so out of place, this is my term, it sounds like you felt isolated from... Very that world is isolation a part of this journey over time do you get separated okay so pick up from college you're feeling separated and isolated and please continue yep so the isolation is is also a huge core feature of eating disorders for most every person i've ever treated with Mm. it um which is part of why connection and community um, is is a key piece of the healing process. But um, after, you know, my attempts, my first attempt at getting help um, and being told it's not that bad, you only have like six more sessions or a very small amount of sessions. <laughs> Let's just get you through um, this work and then I don't have to deal with this mm-hmm. anymore. Yeah. Um, I just went on, you know, and it got worse and worse and worse and worse, um, you know, to the point where I was in, Um, it was, you know, it was impacting my capacity to play basketball and I was still playing because I wasn't going to let, you know, anything take that away from me. And I wasn't going to let anyone know I was suffering. Mm. Um, I felt like I experimented with that. And the answer that came back to me was not like, come on, you whip, you know, like it's not that bad. Yes. (laughs) Get back out there. So I got back out there um, to the point where when I was in medical school, I was symptomatic every single day, you know, multiple, many, many times a day. Mm. Um, and couldn't make it through a day without um, experiencing eating disorder symptoms. Um, it's an awful way to live, you know, and I did not want to be living that way. I just couldn't. I didn't know what to do about it. I didn't know that there was any help. Um I got referred to a couple of people in Hyde Park, again, who weren't, who, who had little familiarity with eating disorders. Um, and it was really heartbreaking because I hated the idea of getting help. Just like, you know, I'd done everything myself. It was part of my family culture. Like, don't ask for help. Be strong. Yeah. Um, and, you know, one of the most heartbreaking memories I have in a therapist's office was when this therapist just looked at me with like despair in her eyes. Like, I, I really don't know what to say. Like, oh, I hope man. you make it back here next week. Oh, good Lord. So that shiver. I mean, really, what, what a horrific thing to yeah. say. You, you're really in such bad shape. I hope that you survive. You can feel time. the despair just sitting in, you know? Yeah. 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 So, you know, and at the same time, um, in college is when I had my first drink. I was very like anti-alcohol, you know, all through high school and very indignant and self-righteous about it too. So (laughs) any of, uh, any of my family members who drank or teammates. Sure. Oh yeah. 
they knew how I felt about it. Um, but I, my family ended up intervening um, on New Year's Day of 2000 after a, like, you know, a, a, an episode very early in the very early morning hours um, <laughs> <laughs> and suggested I get some help. And um, I started working with the therapist who knew addiction and new eating disorders. Um, he had helped my sister actually many years before. Um, so I was a little bit more comfortable with the idea of going and seeing him. And, um, you know, even with him, I was seeing him two or three times a week and it took probably three months of seeing him before I shared with him what I was doing with food. Wow. Um, because the shame was just so, so deep about yeah. that. Um, and, you know, and, Another piece of it for me, too, was the money I was spending on binge foods um, because, you know, this was student loan money. You know, it, it wasn't like I had access to, you know, extra resources right. for anything. Right. Yeah. But um, he, this therapist was um, really crucial in connecting me with a support network. He suggested appropriate levels of care, which I refused because I was a medical student and there was no way <laughs> I, I was going to. I so more than this. Yeah. Yes. Um, but I finally got connected with um, groups. I got connected with a nutritionist who really, um, you know, and the, the piece about a nutritionist too is I, I was um, doing lobby day with the Eating Disorder Coalition last week on the Nutrition Care Act, which wants to mandate that all Medicare recipients have nutrition therapy covered if they have an eating disorder, which is not covered right now. And one of the congressional staffers said, well, don't people know what to eat? You know, like, what, why do they need a nutritionist? Um, and I think that speaks to how difficult it is for people who don't understand what it means to have a brain disease, a mm -hmm. disease that affects the organ that we use to, you know, dictate our behaviors. That um, It's just a really hard thing to understand if you've never felt it. But it, it helped when I said, well, what do you think? Do you think people who have had several opioid overdoses know that it's not a great idea and that they might die if they continue using opiates? Like, do, don't you think they know that, like, not using opiates would be a healthier way to go. <laughs> she was like, yeah, that's a good point. You know, so it's, it's similar. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it was really helpful having that out of my hands and into the hands of a care provider that I could trust, um, you know, who helped me learn how to feed myself yeah. as a medical student. Right. Um, it I wanted to ask you another question, just kind of a follow-up to something that Patty and I have talked about with several other guests. When, when you have early experiences with getting help, early experiences with therapy, early encounters, and they go kind of south, they go kind of sour, they're not great, in any range from, eh, it wasn't great, to, oh my God, I'm never doing that again. Did you find for yourself that it made it harder to find help did it make it the healing process even harder like it's made it feel like it was further away or 
Yeah. Okay. I just didn't want to put words much, in. Okay. Much, Could you much. unpack that just a little bit? I would. I mean, I don't want to take a lot of time on that, but this is one of those themes that keeps coming up. People who later on found help in the early days, the discouragement, and what kind of advice would you have for someone who is about to go in and have their first or second or third encounter, and they're trying to trust this person? Can you kind of unpack yep. that a little bit? For sure. It's such an important thing because um, it felt like a death sentence to me. Mm. You know, uh, first of all, like I said, where I came from, we didn't ask for help. You right. know, it was a sign of weakness. Um, and I was strong. Like I needed everybody to know that I was a tough guy, even though I was a woman. Um, and I am tough, but there's a whole lot else to me. Right. Sure. But constitutionally asking for help is something that I think is difficult to begin with um, for most people who have the characterological makeup that goes along with having an eating disorder. Mm. So when you take the risk and show the vulnerability to ask for help and it's met with people who can't help you or people who tell you you actually don't need it, Mm. you know, which by the way is the message that all of our patients who get insurance denials get like, it's not really that necessary. You don't need the help. Yeah. 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 Yeah, It's not that bad. Yeah, that's that's Um, good. There's nothing quite like that to invalidate um, suffering that you're already feeling shame about. Mm. So it took me, you know, and I went through probably four or five different therapists, four or five different attempts to get help, which felt like Herculean efforts. For sure. You know, to even walk through the door. Yep. Um, so, you know, by the, by the time my family intervened, I was, I had already surrendered to dying of bulimia, Mm. you know, in my twenties. Um, I was pretty sure that it was just going to kill me, you know, and suicide kills up to 50% of people with eating disorders. You know, the other 50% is usually medical complications. Right. And the disease robs you of so much that, you know, at some point living with living in that way, you know, the thought of dying from it felt kind of like, okay, right. you know, so I was at a place of like, if this is going to kill me, like, I'm okay with that. Cause this, the way that I was living was just so painful, mm. you know? So when we have patients walk through our door who are treatment naive, um, My staff all know that, like, this is a very, like, precious moment and a delicate moment and a sacred moment, you know, if we don't think we can help um, based on, you know, like, we don't have a staff member who um, has deep expertise in ARFID, Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder. You know, if we have a patient who walks through our door who has that, I don't want to pretend like we can treat that with a depth of expertise that we don't have. And I also don't want to give them the message that, well, this is something bizarre, like good luck with that. Right. You know, we want to do a warm handoff to an expert that we know in the community that can help this person. So, um, and I tell patients all the time too, you know, like your only job is to keep asking for help until you find the help that is uniquely equipped to help you because I know it's out there. Wow. You know, Advocating. and it might take five times or 10 times. Yeah. Um, your only job is to keep asking and to keep searching. 
what would you suggest? I mean, we have we have a pretty wide audience. The the therapists, the people, the parents, the coaches that are watching this, inevitably at some point will have somebody in their life with an eating disorder. They probably already have and possibly didn't even notice it. Um, maybe they've already been in this situation and they possibly blew it. What is the right response when you don't know how to help? And, and I don't know if it's right or fair to even ask you that question, but yeah. for that therapist that's sitting there, that social worker, and then, you know, for them, they're completely caught off guard by yep. finding something like this. Typically at the level, by the time someone is willing to communicate it, that level's pretty advanced, I would think. What's the right way to say, I don't know how to help you without it? activating i try to use activating instead of triggering these days without it activating something inside of that person i like that you use activating i have to find new terms i do it all the time these overused terms like oh i'm so past that Uh, it's my full-time job finding new terms for these things so thank you first of all that's amazing okay so the right way to respond is this is serious i am so incredibly grateful that you're sharing it with me Mm. that's really brave and i know that's not easy and i am going to be with you until we can find somebody who is um trained to help you because those people are out there and there are a lot of them you know and then you go into your professional network if you don't know anybody who's an eating disorder professional um call the national eating disorders association call um the Alliance for Eating Disorders Awareness, call um, the Academy for Eating Disorders, um, you know, call ANAD, uh, the the Anorexia Nervosa and Associated Disorders um, Association. A lot of good resources there. Yeah, Yeah. and I love that your answer and your approach is, it gives hope, like this is serious, the right people are out there, I'm not necessarily that person, but I'm gonna make sure that you find them. Yeah, important. Not right. And not, you know, here are some options. See you later. But I will be right here with you. We can call these people together. Yeah. You know, I'm with you and I'm going to get you connected to help that can actually make a difference in your life. That's a great answer. We, we talked a little bit about this, but now might be an, an appropriate time to segue into it. The unique nature of each individual's personal situation. Yours happened to be alcoholism and bulimia. When you first had the family intervene, was it for both or was it primarily for alcoholism or the other bulimia? Yeah. So, you know, um, that's, that's another unique thing I think about eating disorders is many times they're so hidden. You know, like I wasn't going out and binging and purging with other people mm. ever. But my drinking was very public, you know. Right. Um, and so they they just knew that I was suffering, you know, because I had gotten into a fight with one of my older brothers. And they were like, I think maybe you need some help with, you know, some of the family stuff and maybe drink a little bit less. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> so yeah. um, it wasn't like, oh, my God, you're dying of an eating disorder. Um, but that was, you know, that was probably, you know, the combination of eating disorder and substance use disorder, um, is very deadly. Mm. 
but they didn't know, you know, they didn't know about the eating disorder piece. And when they did find out about the eating disorder piece, they were really, really afraid. You know. So when people have comorbid issues, how is it best to approach those situations? Because eating disorder alone would probably be different than eating disorder and substance abuse. Mm-hmm. And then right. what about the other mood issues that wouldn't necessarily go along with substance abuse, anxiety, OCD, other psychological yep. concerns. How, how best to communicate or address or how, but what do we do next? Right. As a, as so, a non-professional, is that what you're yeah. asking? Like not someone who has the skill sets, <laughs> someone like yeah. me. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I think this is part of why a thorough diagnostic assessment is important, mm. you know, um, and when possible, treat holistically, by which I mean um, treat co-occurring disorders in an integrated way um, at the same time um, with the same set of treatment providers. If that's not possible, and unfortunately in our healthcare system today and in the eating disorder world today, and even in the substance, the addiction world today, um, you know, it's very siloed. Mm-hmm. Mental health care, medical care more broadly is very siloed. Um, you know, as a psychiatrist um, to people with multiple medical disorders and multiple mental health issues, it's shocking how little, how non-existent communication is from one doctor to another. Mm-hmm. Um, and also the da- the most dangerous part of that for for my patients are most medical doctors know nothing about eating disorders. You know, get very little training in their um, medical school or residency programs um, and can oftentimes say things and, and make interventions that actually make eating disorders worse. So that's a whole nother, I feel like that's a whole nother talk, but um, when possible, treat co-occurring disorders together at the same time. You know, our healthcare system in mental health is set up to sort of tease people apart, you know, Mm. like, okay, well, what is primary? You Um, know, as a human being, our patients are waking up every day with their whole set of issues. You know, they're not just waking up with their eating disorder because that's what insurance feels like is primary. You know, they still have their PTSD or they still have their, you know, depression with suicidal ideation or their OCD or their addiction. Um, And far too often what we do is we send people to, well, you're going to do your eating disorder treatment first and then you can go do your OCD treatment and then you could do your, uh, you know, adamant addiction treatment later, you know, and at this, all the while you have to figure out how to put that all together for you as a person, you know, with little. Doesn't exist in any other industry. I mean, if someone told me I had to do that with my car, I had to go somewhere completely separate for every aspect of my car. And then none of those mechanics were ever going to talk to each other. It, it doesn't even make any sense. We've just gotten here by reverse engineering from the way the, the money is generated with insurance. And now we end up in a position that doesn't make any sense to the human condition. It just, it doesn't, it doesn't connect. 
And the, the teenagers that I used to work with that had eating disorders in particular felt so lost and so distant. They just felt so isolated. That's why I knew to, to reference that. The idea of trying to find help in that system that we're talking about makes it unbearable. It makes it seem so impossible that not only do I have this thing that's happening inside of me and, it, and nobody understands it and I'm alone, but now I have to go find the right resources, connect. All, I don't know who would have that, and to your point, all while the brain is not operating the way it's supposed to be operating. Like the very organ that's meant to help solve these kind of problems is under attack. Yeah. Right. It's yeah. horribly like dark. And even for family members who are often the ones out there, you know, dealing with insurance and trying mm. to find the right program, like they're under an incredible amount of stress with, you know, coming to the realization that their kid has a potentially fatal illness. For sure. You know, like they, they don't have, you know, they're not operating at, you know, their baseline either in right. those circumstances. Right. Do you have any words of wisdom for the patients or family or loved ones because of all of this silo mentality that is going on there. I know that that could be a whole other talk, but if there's any word of encouragement that we could leave the listeners with yeah. before we move on, I, I think that it would be appreciated. And I'm sorry to put you on the spot if it's something that really isn't easy to describe, but how do we help patients and family members advocate for the very patients who are struggling and, and not getting insurance coverage or getting doctors that don't even know what an eating disorder is or what, what kind of advice? Yeah. Well, one piece of advice that I give families and patients all the time is if something doesn't, if something doesn't feel quite right about the treatment that you're getting or if you don't feel like you can actually trust the doctor that you're working with, um, that's important. That too, you need to speak to, like speak to your family about that, speak to your team about that. Um, oftentimes patients will work with doctors and know, you know, like there's an intuitive knowing. Right, yeah. Um, like I knew, for example, when I um, went to the, my therapist who saved my life, I knew the first time I went to this person that he was somebody who could help me. It was just a felt sense. You know, I didn't know anything about his therapeutic techniques. I didn't know anything about, you know, you know what he did other than I knew he helped my sister and I knew that he knew addiction and eating disorders. Um, so I, I, say to, I say to parents, I say to kids, I say to adults who are in treatment, you know, if something doesn't feel quite right, you know, pay attention to that and talk about that. Um, and keep, you know, stay on the search. Stay that's, on the search. That's really important. That, that's a really good point. Mm -hmm. Do you want to touch on the fact, something that you said earlier, that you had visited this particular therapist, I don't know if you said how many times or how many weeks, before you even brought up what you were doing with food. I think that speaks to the point that you were willing to talk about all of these other subjects, and yet out of all of the shame-based issues, eating disorders was still way far back there, still not something you could talk about. Yep. 
So before our first session, he asked me to make a list of what I wanted to get out of therapy. Um, and I probably wrote five or six things down on that list and read it to him in our first session. But it was, you know, I was testing the waters. Right. You know, so what was on that list? You know, stresses of medical school. <laughs> right. You know, really vanilla, you know. Of course. <laughs> yeah, right. Nonstop stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it took a good three months, maybe four months before um, I even shared a little bit with him about my eating disorder. And when I did start to share with him, I didn't, I certainly didn't share everything that was going on. Sure. You know, it was like, well, every now and again, this thing happens with food. You know, that it wasn't. volumes, Kim. Seriously, yep. that's, that is pretty remarkable. Four months, and even though from your first visit, you felt like this person could help you, from the first visit, you felt like you had this trust that you could place there. I, I think that is not insignificant that no. somebody waited that long before they could talk about the last subject. I don't know, was it your last subject? Maybe not. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was low on the list. Right. There were other subjects beneath <laughs> it. But, <laughs> but you know, it, it, it's interesting. We keep coming back to this point because the more negative experiences you've had, it adds to that runtime of earning trust. Right. So in another person yeah. that we were interviewing, uh, Gloria, we were talking about how people who experience uh, trauma when they were children, they subconsciously, they learn how to like plant opportunities for you to show that you're not trustworthy, right? Like yeah. they'll just put little, I call it bait, you know, they'll put something out there to see if you're going to jump on it and be super critical or if they're super yeah. judgmental. And that is, that's a learned thing specifically from childhood trauma. Like you learn to poke the bear several times before you put your hand in its mouth. And yeah. um, the more negative experiences you've had, now, if that's a kid who, um, and I always want to be careful comparing trauma, but if you're talking about a kid who's gone through a bad divorce, that's one thing. But if you're talking about someone whose brain is literally being devoured, for a lack of a better term, from a disease, it's the timetable that has always been a concern with me about eating disorders. As a total outside to that world, there are other issues that people deal with that yeah, if it keeps getting pushed down the road, their life is not getting better, but it's not as dangerous as something like an eating disorder. So every time somebody goes and has a bad therapy experience or a bad help experience, we're really pushing that timeline dangerously, like redlining that timeline. And this is something that Patty and I keep talking about is where can we, with our resources and our, our organizations, focus on removing and helping alleviate the sense of shame you know we're not we're not doctors we don't have we're not it's not going to happen <laughs> we're to, we will not be joining you in in any of that however we have the ability to help people and i know other listeners want to help people and it seems like shame is this ginormous beast that's around this. And every time somebody has a bad opportunity, because it takes so much courage to go present yourself to a total stranger and tell them your darkest secret, every time I feel like that shame is like compounding and it pushes that yeah. person even closer to a horrible end. 
So yeah. my question and all that is, one, is that true or is that just assumptions that I'm making that bad experiences escalates the problem? It's not a neutral thing. It's making it worse. And then two, what can we do around the shame aspect about this? Yep. I'll start with the second one. I think what you guys are doing here helps tremendously with the shame aspect. Mm. You know, people need to hear about these illnesses. People need to hear about what they look like. People need to hear about treatment that works. People need to hear about people recovering. Mm -hmm. People need to know that it's not, um, it's not a patient's fault for having a disease. You know, um, a lot of times patients will say, this comes up a lot more with the, um, in the substance world, but also in the eating disorder world. Like if I... You know, if I have a lapse into purging, am I going to be kicked out of treatment? Mm. Or if I can't finish my lunch, am I going to get, I'm, or I'm so sorry I didn't finish my lunch. You know, when I, when a patient says that to me, I say, let's just take, you know, the moral world and put it over here for a second. Yeah. And I'm a doctor. I'm here to help you. It sounds like you're having symptoms of a disease that I've been trained to treat. So why are you apologizing to me for having symptoms of a disease which is hurting you? Like, mm. that doesn't hurt me at all, you know? I eat my lunch. <laughs> um, my brain is nourished right now. Um, you're hurting, you're suffering, I'm here to help you. Mm. And I think, again, I think if, um, you know, the more people understand that this is not a per something a person's doing because they want to be doing it. I have not met one person who says, yeah, when I was five, I, you know, I had this dream that someday I'd end up in residential treatment for my eating disorder. Right. And that my family would spend hundreds of thousands of dollars out of pocket, you know, that could have been going to my college to pay for medical care. Nobody says that. Right. Right. You know? Which, to your point, that should make it obvious that this is not something people are choosing. This is not the way that you go about getting attention. Um, yep. But I used to run into the same thing where children who were having suicidal ideation, their own parents would be like, you know, they're just trying to get attention. And it just takes your breath. You're like, no, man, that is not how people go about getting attention. Um, and it's yeah. scary, the dismissive nature but I do think after working with so many of those parents, the dismissive nature was rooted in just fear. It's almost yeah. like they can't imagine anything else. Yeah. Yeah. It's a defense mechanism. For sure. Um, and your first question, does it, you know, does having bad therapy experiences compound the shame and push people further away? For sure. Um, and it's a complex, it's a complex issue. Right, because there is this capacity when you've had trauma to experience reenactments. Mm. You know, so if you know, if you went to your family of origin and they weren't able to help you for whatever reason, it's sort of the frame that you approach authority figures with, whether they're therapists or mm -hmm. doctors or coaches or whatever. Um, and it's easy to live in that frame even when it doesn't necessarily match the reality of today for sure um yeah. but that's part of what we know as therapists and doctors 
um, when treating people with histories of trauma. Um, and we can speak to it. And that, that in and of itself engenders uh, some amount of trust yeah. and can, can help people. So, Kim, we've spoken quite a bit about personally having an eating disorder. Let's go forward a little bit and talk about your professional life and how yep. you can help people and people who are in need of therapy or help. Talk about how you got to where you are and, and what you do as a professional. Yep. So I, I did um, all of my training at the University of Chicago. So I went to medical school there. I went to college there. I went to medical school there. I did a year of research there. Um, and the, the year that I took off from medical school and did research is um, really when I got into recovery. Um, and I would say, you know, the, the eating disorder um, symptoms of binging and purging um, probably took about a year and a half of intensive outpatient therapy before those and robust community support multiple times a week. Um, people that I could call 24 seven, um, and a family who was able to make dinners for me and support, like, you know, my mother, um, fed me. And as a, I was a medical student, it was kind of nice to be able to, you know, drive home from the University of Chicago and not have to worry about feeding myself. Um, but God bless and may her soul rest in peace um my mother for um you know doing that for me and loving doing that for me mm. um very very grateful for that i know not everybody has that um and i'm really really blessed that i did but you know it took it took a lot of um it took a lot of time and a lot of support bottom line um but so i did a year of research while i was getting myself into recovery and probably for you know, three to four years after being in recovery, I felt like the disease had been lifted from me, you know, and gone from my brain. Um, and every morning I wake up, I am so grateful for that. You know, it's it's a gift and a blessing, and I do not take it lightly. Um, so I did my residency. Um, I was planning on being a schizophrenia researcher, um, but I... You know, I had a mentor who was running our um, residency uh, process group um, for our residency classmates for all of, all of the years of residency. And he actually shared that he was in recovery from an eating disorder. Um, and that was the first time I had ever experienced any other doctor hmm. talking about having been sick with anything and having recovered from anything. And that made it made me feel like it was safe to share that with my colleagues that, hey, I'm in recovery from an eating disorder too. Um, so even being, you know, in recovery, I was still walking around like I was like, there was some shameful secret that I couldn't let my medical colleagues know. You know, even though it had been like three or four years since I'd been symptomatic. Um, that this this mentor really um, supported me in like being open to working with eating disorders yeah. um, and addiction and mental health um, that was not schizophrenia. 
So um, right out of residency, I um, was um, hired by um, a residential um, that was set up to help adolescent girls with eating disorders. Um, before they opened, it was probably six months before they opened. Um, and that was a really amazing experience to be able to come in at the ground. I was the only psychiatrist there um, and really build a program from the bottom up. Um, yep. And that, you know, for a big period of time, um, that, you know, there were like golden days, um, there, uh, where the team was amazing. We were doing amazing work, um, powerful work. Um, and, you know, more money came into the place, place was bought, the place continued to grow, um, bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, in the meantime, you know, the field in general was being flooded with private equity money, which um, sort of decreased the pool of eating disorder expertise that was available out there to work at places um, like I was working at. Um, and I was also finding myself being very bothered by patients coming to our center for residential care, getting good care for a month or a month and a half, and then going back to their home state um, and not really having access to care that could treat them comprehensively and in an integrated way, and then coming right back, yeah. you know, six months later, coming back with the same, you know, so it felt, it started feeling like, a, wait a minute, I don't think we're actually, you know, doing, you know, making good on the investment of time and money that these patients are spending here with us. So my husband and I decided to open our own place um, and we founded, we co-founded SunCloud Health um, with the idea that we wanted to eventually be able to offer a range of levels of care, but continue to hold people long-term um, and support people long-term not hold, I mean, hold, hold in a therapeutic way, not in a, your are Detain. Way. You're never getting out of here. Yeah. I mean, I, I would hear the word hold and be like, red flag. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> no thanks. Yeah. Yeah, but to be able to continue to support people outside of acute episodes of care, because that's where the hard work is, you know? Like, it's easy to help somebody in a residential level of care. Um, the hard work is when they return to their families or sure. when they return to their homes and their spouses and they're in the day in and day out of their lives, you know? So how do we make this sustainable? How do we be the preventative care arm when they have to go get their colonoscopy when they turn 45? Hey, you're going to have to not eat for a day. Do you think that's going to trigger anything for you? Mm. You know, because if there isn't somebody who's saying that to them, I guarantee you it's not going to come from their GI doctor or their primary care doctor. Sure. Um, That's true. So there are, you know, it's a, um, and I, I also um, really like having sustainable, longstanding relationships with patients. And that's, you know, that, that too is healing for a lot of our patients who have attachment traumas, mm. um, you know, who feel sort of like, like they've done program hopping or hopped from this person to the next, to the next, to the next. So um, 
it's been it's been five years now going on yeah five years now and um it's been a it's been a lot of work but also uh, a really beautiful experience to be able to handpick clinicians um to be able to um have total control <laughs> <laughs> yeah i bet yeah, that's wonderful. Um, which we never really have. Sure. You know. Sure. Um, yeah, it's an illusion. But yeah. I like to think we do. It's, yep, it is an illusion for sure. But, um, you know, it's been a, I, I look back in amazement over the last five years. I thought my husband was crazy when he was like, let's start our own place. He's a business guy, an entrepreneur, and I'm a doctor and like things, you know, Pretty like well planned out. <laughs> <laughs> yes, entrepreneurship is nothing but yeah. well planned out. Yeah, absolutely. I want to be sure that we talk about a subject that I realize is very important to you, and I want to give you time to to speak to it. There is um, a stereotype that eating disorders primarily hit North American white high school and college girls. You have some work in other areas, specifically chronic as well as people who are going through menopause or who uh, develop an eating disorder when they are older and then also men so would you talk to some of the groups that are not this typical stereotype yeah do yeah so it's that that's a pervasive myth right that these are diseases that affect like middle class upper class white adolescent girls um they affect all different races. They affect all different genders. Um, men are very, men and boys are highly underserved, um, primarily because so much of the eating disorder, all of the, much of the eating, the vast majority of the eating disorder research has been on women. Um, and all of our diagnostic tools, all of our screening tools, you know, have been largely um, designed and researched and shown to be um, efficacious for uh, white women and girls. Um, so there, there are um, lots of efforts right now going on to adapt um, and create tools that will help people who are not in the majority. So men, boys, um, black people, brown people, um, gender minorities. Um, and one of the things that's been um, really, really great for me personally and professionally is to run men's eating disorders groups hmm. um, and to work with people who, you know, who have another area that I think it's highly stigmatized within the eating disorder world to, to two areas. One are those with chronic disease um, or relapsing and remitting courses. You know, there's this like, if you're not recovered, then there's something wrong with you. You know, that's never what people say. But if we step back and look at, you know, what every advocacy group sort of highlights, it's recovered people, hmm. you know, but there we know that up to, you know, 20 to 30 percent of our patients, we don't have good tools for. So we are still failing 20 to 30 percent of our patients and those patients deserve good care, you know, and deserve to be 
um, celebrated and highlighted for their wins, even if it doesn't look like what my win looked like or sure. what somebody else's win looked like. Um, so those, you know, those two patient populations are populations that um, we we serve and we delight in serving. Um, the men's group, I love my men's group. They're amazing. Um, you know, a range of ages, a range of different professions, um, range of, you know, unique diagnostic clusters, you know, that uh, just aren't the same for every single person. When we talked about this the last time, you mentioned that there were things that you learned from them, not just ways that you could help them through whatever their progress was. Do you want to speak to that, Annie? Um, I've learned so much from them about, you know, all of the, um, again, these embedded ideas in our culture about what it means to be a man, Mm. uh, beyond just body and food, you know, um, so many, a big, big aspect of what, um, all of the men that's treated with eating disorders struggle with is this, you know, they, they battle with this idea, uh, I have a girl's disease. You know, like, what does it say about me? So there's an added layer of shame. And many of them have been in treatment um, that perpetuates that, not intentionally, but by virtue of the fact that they're the only man in the Mm -hmm. treatment group. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, just look around. You don't have to be told. Environment. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's important to be able to offer um, treatment to people um, with who have identifiers that are common uh, that are not just like anorexia, you know? So do I really want patients coming here and identifying as, well, there's the anorexia group and there's the bulimia group and there's the binge eating disorder group. No, I want people coming and identifying as human beings um, and identifying with aspects of who they are that don't really have anything to do with the disease. I've heard that theme quite a bit from patients directly. I wish somebody would treat me as a person and not as my illness. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important that we continue to repeat that to people who haven't personally experienced that because it is almost a a, a default role. You focus on what it is that they are there to be treated for. Sure. Yeah. Well, and that, you know, one of the things that I always get on a soapbox about is when I hear professionals using words like she's an anorexic or he's a bulimic, Um, you know, like this, this is a person or even say this is a patient with the disease of anorexia or this is a patient with bulimia or anorectic is even, I don't know why, but that whenever I hear a professional (laughs) use that word. I didn't even know that was a it's word. it's an old school word that many of the old school eating disorder professionals still use. Okay, well, it sounds very permanent. That's the well, issue. Like, yeah, this also, is what you are. Right. Yeah. We yeah. don't look at you and say you are cancer. Right. Not more than once. Right. <laughs> say it. You're only going to get away yeah. with it one time, and yeah. someone's going to be like, "I'm sorry, what?" Yeah. yeah. You know, you, you yeah. are broken. Yeah. We just don't. Yeah. So I, I think that's a good message to get out. Can yeah. It. Would you ever say to someone, this is, you know, this is uh, a breast cancer? Right. I'd like you to meet this breast cancer. Yeah. Very awkward meeting. 
Yeah. Very awkward. Right. <laughs> Alrighty, and my name is. Hello. Right. It's right. <laughs> we would never yeah. even ever ever say that. Yeah. But. Right. You know, right. Like, right. It's yeah. Okay, so stop saying that, people. Yeah. Listen up. Yes. Yeah. But that does speak to the fact that it does feel like it, it is always, for me, as an outsider, totally untrained in this space, it has always felt like the majority of parents felt like their kids were choosing this. When I was working with parents, uh, full disclosure, uh, when I was a minister and a youth pastor working with kids is what I'm referencing to, the... it. It feels like the fact that we don't do this in any other disease, we do it with this, is one more thing that points to the fact that it's almost like it's something you're choosing to do, you know? It reminds me of, like, the abusive way that parents used to deal with bedwetting, you know? Like, you're a bedwetter. That's what you do. That's what you do. And kids grew up with incredible, horrible issues as a result of just parents just shaming the daylights out of their kids. Again, it just seems like we would never say this, hi, this is cancer, this is breast cancer, but this is an anorexic. It just seems like that we feel that way culturally as if people are choosing. Like they yep. really are, at the end of the day, if, I mean, if this is horrible to say, I'll even cut it out, but it does feel like there's part of our culture that feels like people are like, yeah, they're choosing this. This is something that they want. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I still meet people to this day who are very intelligent, very well educated, very socially aware, well-traveled. I mean, th- these are not people in an isolated, don't go out of their right. hometown, right. who believe that this is a choice. Yeah. We've just yeah. got to say that it is not a choice. Right. So. Yeah. And I think, you know, the other area of mental health where we do hear it is, um, you know, this person is an addict or a, or a substance abuser. Ah, right. Good this point. This person's an abuser yeah. rather than this is a person with a disease of addiction. And then schizophrenia. Mm. Like oftentimes people refer to people with schizophrenia as this is a schizophrenic. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Right? You're totally right. It's interesting, though, the ones that you've identified, if I've caught them all correctly, are not primarily the medical problem. They're primarily a behavioral or a mental health problem. So we're, we're still getting that issue between we've figured out that because somebody has a medical disease known as cancer, we talk about them differently. But anybody with a mental health mm-hmm. concern, we feel like it's okay to identify them as their problem. Right. And I really think like one thing that would help a lot with this is if we started talking about brain diseases as medical illnesses that affect the organ exactly. called the brain. Exactly. You know, like mental health is a medical issue. It is. Thank you. You know, but it's been carved out, which is part of the stigma. Mm-hmm. Like, get those people over there. Mm-hmm. Don't put them in my camp. Right. Like, this is a real issue. Right. And those are made up issues. Um, and I think, you know, neurobiologic research, genetic research is really, you know, we can't look at that research and what we know today and say that these are not medical illnesses. Right. Well, at the end of the day, when people are dying, they are dying from medical problems associated with this illness. For sure. So if that isn't a medical illness, how is it defined? Yeah. People, yeah. people die of organ failure. They, they die from all sorts of medical issues associated from this. 
I yep. want you to be able to tell people how to get in touch with you. Talk about, you've got a new facility that is opening up soon. Speak a we little do. bit about your, your company and how people can connect with you. We're going to have beds. Yay! I'm really Yay. excited about that. Small, a small, you know, reasonable, <laughs> something we could do well. Um, so we're SunCloud Health. Um, www.suncloudhealth.com is our website. Uh, our phone number is on there. If you want to reach me, um, my e email is probably the best way, um, drkim at suncloudhealth.com. And that's just drkim at suncloudhealth.com. Awesome. But we offer outpatient, um, ongoing outpatient care for people who have been through our IOP, PHP, and soon to be residential. Kim, can you explain those letters for the listeners who don't? <laughs> oh yeah, for me, <laughs> for me. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I heard IHOP oh. in there somewhere, but I wasn't. I wasn't <laughs> sure. For pancakes. Yeah. All right. Pancakes. Um, so we offer intensive outpatient treatment, which is anywhere from three to five days a week, usually three or four hours a day. Okay. Um, partial hospitalization. Uh, program PHP, which is full day treatment, uh, Monday through Friday, and then residential will be um, 24 seven care. Gotcha. That is very informative and it's actually very exciting too. Um, congratulations on this new for opportunity sure. for you. And you are located where? We are located, um, our, our main site is located in Northbrook, which is where our um, residential will be Northbrook, Illinois. And then we also have a site in Lincoln Park, which is in Chicago, and a site in Naperville, which is a southwest suburb. Perfect. Well, thank you very much. It has been wonderful talking with Absolutely. you today. And we are very happy that you could join us. Absolutely. Well, listeners, thank you so much for listening. Um, we've covered a lot in, in this particular episode, so feel free to ask questions or make comments uh, wherever you happen to be listening. Check out channelsofhealth.com. I'm always trying to not say channels of healing. That's why there was a delay. Channelsofhealth.com to uh, hear our other episodes, and we will see you in the next podcast. Thank you for listening to Channels of Health. We're so glad you've joined us today. To find out more about our mission and to connect with Channels of Health, go to www.channelsofhealth.com. And you can email us directly at info at channelsofhealth.com. We look forward to our next episode with you. Until then, be well.